walking in a country road And I've been chasing after my shadow Hi everybody, and welcome back to the Camino Podcast, our first episode of 2016, and our sixth episode overall. Given all of the wailing I was doing in previous episodes about the weather here in Portland, Oregon, I feel it's my obligation to share that it is a beautiful, crisp, sunny winter day here, and uh, a great day to be outside, aside from the uh, below-freezing wind chill. It's, uh, it's still a glorious day in the Pacific Northwest. I hope the same is true for you, wherever you are, and I hope that you've had a great start to 2016. I've been on vacation over the last couple of weeks, and one of the byproducts of that is I've spent a lot of time perusing the American Pilgrims on Camino Facebook forum, and also the Camino Forum run by Ivor. And one of the things I've noticed is that with the new year, there are a lot of people starting to think about their 2016 pilgrimage, including a lot of people who are new to it. And as they start to think about how to get to the starting point, particularly on the Camino Francais and to Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, there's a lot of concern, a lot of uncertainty about what's the best approach. And so I see a lot of people posting questions about what's the best place to fly into. And I see a lot of very firm answers being offered up. Let me offer my own perspective on this. There's no one correct answer to where you should fly in when you are getting ready to start the Camino Frances. The first question you should ask yourself is, which resource is a greater priority for you, time or money? And that's going to go a long way in influencing your decision. Because the reality is, you could fly into lots of different cities and make it work. Some will cost more than others, but they might save you time. For example, there's no better place to fly in, probably, than Pamplona or perhaps the San Sebastian Airport. Both of them will be part of one continuous international flight plan on a major airline, and they will get you very close to Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port. But they're also probably going to cost more. The only way to fly into Pamplona or San Sebastian as part of an international connection is as part of an American Airlines, British Airways, Iberian flight plan, and that may not be the lowest price possible. Right now, as I've been looking ahead to flying in the summer of 2016, I've found that flying into London is much cheaper than flying into Madrid or Paris, let alone Pamplona or San Sebastian. And so what I've done is I've booked an international flight from my home in Portland into London, and then I've pieced together some connecting flights using no-frills airlines like EasyJet and Vueling to get me to as close as, as close to the starting point as possible. And from the finishing point, flying out of Santiago de Compostela. So really, start with the question of how much time do you want to commit to the travel? And if you have some extra disposable income... 
is it worth it? Is it worth putting a little bit more into the tickets in order to get yourself the shortest connection possible? I suggest you start on Google's flight planning page, flights.google.com. Plug in your dates and then scroll over to Europe. And what it will do is show you different prices for flights going into all of the different cities in the area. The closer you scroll in, the more options it will give you for the smaller local airlines. Keep in mind that if you are trying to get into, say, San Sebastian or Biarritz, which is a French beach town that is very close to Bayonne, where you can pick up the train to Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, you may be better off trying to fly into London or Paris and then finding a connecting flight on a no-frills airlines. There aren't many major airlines that fly into Biarritz, for example, but EasyJet flies from London or from Paris. Again, the connections may not be ideal. In most cases, that connecting flight from Paris is very early in the morning which means you're going to have to overnight in Paris. Similarly, many of the no-frills airlines from London will fly out of Stansted instead of Gatwick or Heathrow, and the connection time might force you to overnight in London. But maybe that's a perk and not a flaw. Maybe it's worth giving yourself a night or two in London or Paris to do some sightseeing, adjust to the new time zone, and then carry on. Consider these variables as part of your planning and be driven by your priorities, not by the expertise of others who might be drawing on a single experience. You can fly into London, to Paris, to Madrid, to Barcelona, to Bilbao, Pamplona, San Sebastian, Biarritz, all of those can work. Figure out your priorities and go from there. Coming up today, I'm interviewing two people. The first is Landon Roussel, who's the author of a new book detailing his experience on the Camino Primitivo, but also his experience with his brother as they walked the pilgrimage together as an opportunity to reconnect after very limited opportunities to come together over the preceding decade. And then I'll be joined by Rachel Grimes to reflect on her own experiences on the Camino Frances this year, or last year, I suppose, 2015. And we'll talk about some pilgrim expressions together. And then to wrap things up today, I want to chew on some of the statistics from 2015. With the year having been completed, the Cathedral of Santiago has shared out the final pilgrim statistics for the year, and they're worth some conversation. So that's the plan. Sit back, enjoy, and I hope you all have a great 2016 in front of you. Landon Roussel joins me now from Cambridge, Massachusetts. He's the author of a new account on the Camino Primitivo titled On the Primitive Way. Landon, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to talk with you. I think this is the first English language pilgrim journal on the Camino Primitivo. On the Primitive Way centers on your relationship with your brother, Corey, and the pilgrimage that the two of you made on the Primitivo. You describe in the book the backstory behind this, but for the benefit of the audience, why did the two of you make this pilgrimage together? 
Well, um, it was a much-needed um, experience for us after um, more than a decade of really not talking to us to each other for um, for any significant amount of time. After um, we experienced a significant rift once he uh, got deeper into drugs and addiction. Mm-hmm. And eventually found himself uh, in prison. Um, this was the experience for us to come back together when he was released from prison and sort of reconcile with each other after um, after uh, such uh, distance. Mm. And so that's that's what was uh, behind um, our our decision to walk the Camino. And how had Corey's history of addiction affected your relationship with him? Well, um, when we were in our late teens, um, Corey's addiction got pretty serious. Um, I was a senior in high school. He was a junior. And um, it it got to the point um, where he was... was, uh, using drugs almost daily and uh and when my parents confronted him about it he refused to quit mm. and when i um tried to um when i would not approve of his drug use he he unleashed a particular fury on me and really our whole family experienced um one of the most difficult periods we had ever been through as uh, he insisted on his unfettered right to do drugs while we tried to save him from a very destructive habit. And so after the um, after that experience, I eventually even had to move out of the house for some time. Um, hmm. uh, and he had to, and he eventually got put in a long-term drug rehab. After that experience, um, we did not... Uh, communicate that much with each other. It's not that we, um, I particularly held it against him for what he did because mm-hmm. he did apologize for, you know, all of the, all of the, uh, anger that he, he showed towards me and towards our family while he was using, doing drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, but still, you know, uh, old wounds die hard. Uh, especially when it's from somebody in your family. And so we just sort of parted our separate ways in our adult years, and especially as he started using drugs again, you know, uh, relapsing. Um, I um, I did not, um, I, I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to expose myself to uh, having a, to experiencing those wounds of our teenage years that were so hurtful, mm. and so um, and so we we essentially were estranged from each other for um, for over ten years, um, mm. and it wasn't really until he got arrested that we started coming together again uh, through handwritten letters. Uh, we would we would write letters to each other. They would only allow snail mail. They did a lot, a little bit of email, but he he lost access to that. I think for financial reasons, although I'm not really sure. Mm. And um, 
And so we would write handwritten letters to each other, um, and and really we connected more than we ever had um, in person, and and just sort of you know I was able to express the hurt that he left me with. He was able to apologize, and he really changed as a person while he was in prison. And so towards the end of his prison sentence, which I think was in total two or three years, um, I realized we we really even though we had connected on paper, mm-hmm. we really needed to connect in a, a physical way. Um, and so I proposed that we walk the way of St. James, and that was sort of the, the history of, of how we decided to walk the Camino. Mm. So I had the chance to read your book a couple of days ago, and it, it really is a, a moving story of, of two brothers. And as someone with a brother who had his own experiences that were, were difficult at times. It, it, it resonated with me in a lot of ways. Um, and so I, I, on one hand, I, I recognized that this was the account of, of you and Corey, who were two real people. Um, but since it's a book, I also thought of you as characters in a book. And as a reader, I sometimes struggled to understand Corey you know, the, the dialogue between the two of you in the novel is is often pretty limited. And so I had to form impressions off of fairly isolated ex- expressions, maybe a, a look on his face or, or a, a subtle interaction between the two of you. So the impression that I developed about your brother was that he's a kind, caring, sensitive person, but someone who's also a bit mysterious as though he were kept at arm's reach. And so I offer that extended description to you to ask, is that a fair reading of your brother? And is that the reading that you intended? Yeah, that's definitely, that's definitely uh, a fair reading. And it's, and it's, um, it's very, uh, it's very on point in many ways. Um, because, um, in some ways, um, I uh, I meant for there to be a sort of mysteriousness about him, mm-hmm. because to him, to me, he was a mystery in many ways. He still is now, um, you know. And uh, you know, he was so smart, so intelligent, and I mean, he was he was, you know, making electrodes in his room when he was in high school, and he figured out how to grow grow marijuana plants in his room Mm. and uh you know but yet he would do these things that just to me were like very foolish and so i had a hard time figuring out you know why you know this lack of judgment from such a smart person um and so he was a mystery to me and i i didn't i wanted the reader to experience that and not you know try to paint something um of of him that um, that wasn't the perspective that I had, and the other thing is that um, not only was he a mystery to me, but I also wanted um, I I wanted people to see the story as uh, as it as I sort of experienced it as I went, so I didn't want to go you know, go in the future and sort of say something about him that I sort of found after he died. I wanted to sort of just be as close to reality as possible 
of the way I experienced it because that's that was our story. I didn't want to sort of make a story of out of something that didn't happen. And so um I think there is there is still some degree of uh of mystery to him and I think one of the lessons that I, I hope comes out of 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 the story and, and, and sometimes it's brevity in our relationship and description of our relationship is that you know, the process of reconciliation in some ways, you know, we reconciled on the Camino, mm-hmm. but in other ways, it's it's an ongoing process to always reconcile with someone you love, especially someone who who you've experienced hurt from. It's it's always a process and there's always there's always times where you can be drawn apart and there's always a chance to sort of keep on uh trying to reconcile. So I think that's a very on point uh read and uh, and and I hope that it uh it has it has some effect even though it's not um it's not as descriptive in, in detail. Um so is the lack of dialogue consistent with the experience that the two of you had that you typically didn't talk very much while you were walking? Well, uh initially uh initially we didn't as as much um and and sometimes i i um i i just neglected to put more quotidian things <laughs> uh that we did spoke about in sure. although um uh, but a lot of it yeah we we did um uh, we did you know walk at the initial part uh, without giving too much away in the story, we did walk part of the initial part, um, you know, on our own ways before we sort of decided that we were going to walk together. Mm-hmm. I I asked the question in part because I'm interested in the idea that this great process of reconciliation can unfold without a lot of extensive dialogue or discussion. In other words, it felt from the book like you felt that the two of you came closer together. And a big part of that was simply through the process of walking together, not necessarily through a lot of intensive heart-to-heart discussions. Is that fair? That's absolutely true. That's absolutely right. Um, I can remember uh, an experience where... um, we were walking up to to the um, to to the peak of um, it's called Buspol, mm-hmm. and there's uh, and after that you eventually get to where you can see in full view the um, the it's called the uh, I think it's called the the Embalse de Saline. Yeah, absolutely. Which is the um, this large hydroelectric dam. And, um, yeah, as we were walking up there, it was incredibly windy and the wind was biting our face. And I think we might have even took turns, uh, trying to shield each other from the wind. And just the <laughs> process of us making it up that peak, there was something to me that really bonded us together, just, just doing that. And there were not many words said between each other. Mm. But, um, but you know, the fact that we were helping each other out to get up 
a high peak. It was very difficult. That mm-hmm. to me was, you know, a sort of brother brotherly bonding experience that we went through. And uh, there weren't a lot of words, but but you know it was part of the process, mm-hmm. and it drew us closer together. So yeah, yeah, I think it's a powerful thing. Just the way that simply walking together can produce a, a tighter bond than existed previously. Absolutely. Um, all families have their their sore spots, their sadnesses, their tragedies, and I think the impulse in most cases, certainly for me is to keep those as private matters and to share them no further than with a small and trusted circle. So I'm curious, was it a difficult decision to make such a personal story so public? And how did your family feel about the decision? Well, not really for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't particularly a difficult decision. Um, I've been writing for, for years, and even on the Camino, writing for the, uh, the Pilgrim Newsletter and for the, uh, the magazine El Peregrino in Spain. Mm-hmm. So I've been, you know, used to writing and publishing. Um, but uh, as far as about my brother, uh, after his death, um, it, you know, it, you know, the entire circumstances surrounded surrounding his death sort of catapulted his, you know, problem into full public light from everyone who knew us, which was quite a few people. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I was faced with the task of, you know, saying some words at his funeral about him and about us. And, um, a couple of days after I found out that, um, that he was killed. I was in a coffee shop in Houston writing his eulogy, and um, I realized that our story couldn't be really put down in, in just just a few pages, and that it was too too rich and too too deep to really uh, leave it at at the eulogy. And so, um, so I realized that that this had to be put down into a book. And, um, you know, what I found in, in, in publishing the book is, you know, um, I, I have a lot of people come to me and say, you know, my, my son has, you know, battled with, with addiction or my, my brother has battled with addiction or my, you know, my, my father has, has battled with, with addiction and, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, whether it's addiction or whether whether it's imprisonment or whether it's, you know, any sort of stigmatized um, type of uh, um, uh, behavior, mm-hmm. um, every family has somebody who, who you know, somewhere along the line, they, they, they have a, they have a history of something that, that the family may not be, um, proud of or maybe even ashamed of and um you know i think that um that part of uh part of writing writing this and publishing this has um has helped me see that um that you know it's 
it's part of the part of the reconciliation with uh, with my brother is to sort of help other people, you know, come to to reconcile with 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 their own family members wherever they are at. Mm. And uh, I hope that that comes across in the book. As far as my family's reception of it, uh, they've been incredibly supportive, um, all of them. Um, and um, I think they all realized after my brother passed that um, we, we just need to be open and, and talk about it and, and, um, and, and, and not be sort of... Uh, ashamed because we all we all loved him and we all sort of accepted him where we, where he was at and you know maybe part of the initial uh, initial process of him going into drugs and getting into drugs was him not feeling accepted and uh, and then you know uh, once once he got himself so deep we realized that you know, we just have to accept him where he's at. Not that we needed to per se uh, condone what he was doing, but at the very least, you know, love him mm-hmm. where he was at and try to try to keep a good relationship and try to help him. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've been very supportive. Yeah, that's great. I read yeah. a lot of pilgrim memoirs, pilgrim narratives, um, and one of the things I've noticed is that pilgrim narratives tend to balance the personal experience, the person writing, with context on the pilgrimage itself. And it struck me when I was reading On the Primitive Way that you really had three distinct pieces to balance. The story of your relationship with your brother, which is really the backstory to the pilgrimage itself. There's the account of your pilgrimage together, and then a description of the Camino Primitivo. So I'm curious, like as a writer, when you were constructing this, how did you try to balance those pieces within the narrative that you constructed? Yeah, that's a that's a good question, and definitely took many many revisions of drafts um, of uh, of writing. But um, I wanted to, uh, on the one hand. Um, give people a uh, description of this less traveled route uh, to Santiago that's really, you know, the most historical route. Um, and, you know, it's a beautiful path. It's an enchanting path. It's a, it's a less trodden path. So I didn't want to not just, I wanted to keep that description alive in the book um, at the same time, I wanted to stick to our story of me and my brother, and what um, and, and our process of of of, um, of being separated and estranged and coming together. And so, um, I sort of did it through flashbacks and tried to relate the flashbacks, put in the flashbacks at times where, you know, in the story it would be pertinent, you know, um, where after, uh, a, uh, after being blindsided by a blizzard, I talk about being blindsided by his imprisonment mm. and how they were both, um, you know, uh, caught us by surprise. 
And so that's really the main way is, is through is through sort of recollections as we go, which, you know, is kind of in a way how how I experience, you know, walking with him because, you know, as you as you go along this route with as I went along this route with someone who I hadn't spent hardly a day with in over a decade, you know, a lot of the memories from our our past would come up as as we walked and that so that's um mm. that's how uh that's that's in a way how I experienced it. But that's that's really how I tried to balance it was was uh was through through relevant flashbacks. I thought it worked really well the way that you did it and the, the transitions were really smooth. Um, so on the whole, it, it, it some people sometimes find flashbacks to be jarring and to, they can have a hard time sort of holding the narrative together. But I think you, you weave the pieces together really well. Yeah, thanks. I, I, I wanted, I, I did a lot of paring down of things when mm-hmm. it came to our past and tried to keep everything relevant to where we were then. So it kind of gave a sense of how how I experienced this process of trying to reconcile um, as we went along the way and reconcile not with each other now, but given our past. Mm-hmm. You mentioned a little bit about the Camino Primitivo. I'd like to have you talk a little bit more about the route because most of the people listening, if they have experience on pilgrimage, it's probably on the Camino Frances. So what in your mind are the one or two big highlights, the big things that stand out for you that define the Camino Primitivo? Yeah. Um, I'd say one is it's sort of ruggedness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you could, you could take that in many different ways. Uh, they'd probably all be right. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the, the places for albergues on the Primitivo are uh, much fewer and far between, as I'm sure you know, than mm-hmm. on the Francis. Uh, you might have one or two options, maybe one option in some places, uh, for 30 kilometers in between. Um, and you could also, so, and sometimes, you know, your places to eat might be one or two, mm-hmm. maybe three. Um, so you're you're kind of dealing, and oftentimes albergues uh, are pretty, 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 uh, they can be kind of threadbare mm-hmm. uh, in some of these mountains in Asturias. Um, also, the weather is not uh, not nearly as sort of predictable as the plains of La Meseta and El Frances, <laughs> when you have like mostly sunshine as you walk, you know, through from you know Burgos to León. Whereas when you're walking through these mountains in Asturias, you might have sunshine, you might also have rain, you might also have snow, even in July. So, um, so, so um, it is it is kind of rugged, but at the same time, it's it's very serene and tranquil. I mean, uh, it's it's really a, an uh, un. Uh, uh, unspoiled beauty mm. um, and when you're talking about Camino routes there's not a lot of people there uh, the nature is beautiful through the mountains and the snow snow-capped peaks outside Oviedo the old farms 
um, the uh, the green green hills, uh, the the uh, Embalse de Saline, mm-hmm. large dam uh, nestled between uh, two uh, mountains with glacial runoff. Um, it's it's really beautiful, and so um, it's it's kind of a an enchanted route, and it's um, it's also um, the most um, historic route. And I, I talk about this a bit in the book, but more so in the footnotes. Um, that uh, so some of the first pilgrims who started walking to the body of Saint James the Apostle were from the region of Asturias, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the first well the first reported pilgrim. The first king to sort of inaugurate the way was uh, was King Alfonso. Um, I believe it was the Segundo, the second Alfonso of Castro, the chaste uh, king they called him, and he uh, and he did this. Um, I believe it was in eight or nine hundreds. And there's a there's a plaque outside of Lugo when you walk uh, into the walls of Lugo that uh, that's that that inaugurates his route. And so that was really the more historic route before the Camino sort of picked off and picked up in the 1200s and 1300s with people walking from all around Europe through the Frances. It was really the Pinotivo that was the first major route. So it's got a sort of enchantment that uh, that is sort of unmatched in, in the Frances. Yeah, it's it's so awesome. It's such a great walk. Um, and I'm, I'm glad that people now have your narrative to read as part of their preparation and to get them excited and motivated to go take on the Primitivo. I've Yeah, well, it's only 3% of pilgrims who yeah. do it now, so I hope that number goes up as, uh, as, as more people learn about the Primitivo and more people walk the Camino. It's definitely going up, and uh, the facilities are starting to come into place, and uh, there are some more albergue options. So it's 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 definitely coming along. It's it's I I would just so strongly encourage people to walk it soon. You know, while it still does have absolutely that that unspoiled quality that that you're describing. I just have a couple last questions for you. You know, you walked one pilgrimage with your brother and another one with your wife, obviously under very different circumstances. Nonetheless, I think you have a great perspective on the benefits and the challenges of walking with family. And this is a decision that lots of people make. You know, do they walk alone? Do they walk with a spouse, with a a sibling? What advice would you offer to individuals considering going on pilgrimage with family? I I would definitely advise uh, one wants to walk with their uh, family that, that they're prepared for for you know not just themselves but their family members it's prepared my wife and I when I walked it we were you know um, in our early 20s and uh, we were both young and pretty fit so that wasn't an issue um, I have uh, uh, two children now the youngest of whom is uh, is five months and the oldest of whom is three years and um, as much as we'd like to walk the Camino right now, we might have to hold off a little bit uh, while we have two two little ones. Um, and uh, some some people like um, it's it's kind of a lot to to walk 
20, 20, up to 25 miles in a day. And so um, I would definitely make sure that both are in agreement that, uh, that it's, you know, about how much you're going to, you're going to have to be physically uh, exerting yourself. Um, but, um, you know, I think more than that, it, it's going to be a bonding experience. And so um, if, if this is a potential uh, bonding experience for someone in your family who you need to, uh, to, to, or that, that kind of experience is needed or, or welcomed or, 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 or uh, long waiting. This is definitely the way to do it. Uh, is to walk the Camino together because you are going to be um, you are going to be much uh, much stronger in your relationship than before you went. Um, you know, I can say this having walked with my my wife uh, for our honeymoon and then walked with my brother after you know a decade of being apart. Then you know both you know every time we walk. We, I walked with you know someone from my family. It was um, it was an incredible bonding experience. So if if that's a potential option, practically, uh, don't don't miss. I would not miss the chance to to, to go on it. Mm. How can people learn more about on the primitive way? Well, um, you can. Uh, it's on Amazon. So if you just type on the primitive way on Amazon, um, it's. Uh, It'll show up. Um, you can also go to my website on theprimitiveway.com, and um, and there's plenty of information, book trailers, um, uh, my blog posts that talk about it, um, and I also have a, a YouTube channel uh, um, for uh, on the primitive way um, by um, with the with the trailers that I've. Uh, that I've made for it. Uh, so you can just type in on the primitive way, uh, by me, Wayne or so. And, um, and that should show up there. So. Awesome. Landon Roussel, thanks for joining me to talk about on the primitive way. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. And thank you for doing this podcast series to help people, uh, uh, learn about this, uh, uh, treasure of, of our, of our world history. Rachel Grimes joins me from Texas to talk about her pilgrimage on the Camino Frances. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Rachel. Well, thanks for having me, Dave. I appreciate it. So tell me about your experience in some broad brushstrokes. When did you walk and where did you walk? Well, I walked to the Camino Fran- Frances this past spring. Mm-hmm. I started in early May and I finished probably about the first week of June, so June 6th. Okay. And in that time, I did take three rest days, so I didn't, you know, walk straight through. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was a beautiful, beautiful time to walk. That's awesome. What? Yeah. So tell me about that timing. You know, you, you were in late spring, just before summer started. What mm-hmm. was the Camino like at that time of year? Well, like I said earlier, it was beautiful. So if you can remember, and this might, I might be dating myself here, <laughs> uh, the early screensaver on Windows where it was just this big green field, oh, yeah. these rolling hills and the blue background, that's what it looked like. It was so beautiful. And then there were also tons and tons of fields of poppies, which was mm. really cool to see. 
And those fields, sometimes they were wheat, and they would kind of be waving in the wind, and it sort of looked like a school of fish, you know, off in the distance. It was just really, really nice. But having said that, (laughs) I was hit with allergies so bad. And I didn't anticipate that. And just being outside in that constantly just Mm -hmm. really, really was tough on me. And it was actually unseasonably warm, too, Mm -hmm. um, during that time. So many people who were European said, well, I'm going home. It's too hot for me, and I'll come back next year, or I'll come back in a few weeks or or whatever. So that was kind of the strange part. I even thought about ditching my coat at one point because I said, well, man, it's been really hot, you know, for two weeks, and then Mm -hmm. it kind of got back to normal temperatures, and I'm glad I didn't get rid of it. But it was a really... Uh, nice time to be on the Camino. Let's pull it back a little bit and talk about your preparation. There are lots of different strategies, lots of different schools of thought for how to prepare for pilgrimage. What did you do to prepare? Well, when I started thinking about going, so I knew I was going to go for my 30th birthday. So Mm -hmm. I probably had about a year to prepare, and I really just walked a whole lot. (laughs) I uh, probably tried to walk at least three or four times a week, six Mm -hmm. to seven miles in a chunk. And for a while, I was carrying a backpack that I had just put two, um, like, hand weights in. I don't know what I was thinking. That was (laughs) super uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And then finally, once I purchased my backpack, I started walking with that. Yep. And uh, I walked with my dog a lot. So people probably thought I was a little strange in the suburb that I live in. You don't see a lot of people walking around with a backpack on. Yeah. And it wasn't very hilly. It's not very hilly where I live. So I think that that was the one maybe disadvantage, but at least I got some mileage on my shoes and Mm -hmm. got to try out my pack and see what I liked about it, what I didn't like about it, those sorts of things too. Mm -hmm. How utterly sensible that you trained for a walking trip by walking a lot. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) I feel like sometimes people overcomplicate this stuff, but ultimately it is as simple as just walking and getting Getting miles in. Yeah. Yeah. And I also, of course, you know, uh, read way too much on the internet about mm. You know, planning and places to stay and what to, you know, all kinds of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that is a that's a polarizing subject, right? There are some people who yes. like to read a ton, and there are some people who just say like, I want to go in blind and and let my experience shape my own perceptions right. of the route. Yeah. Do you do you regret all of the reading that you did beforehand? I don't think I regret the reading too much because what I had decided to do, so I actually took a course on the Camino in my undergrad. Oh, wow. And it was really more on the historical background, the legend, a lot of the architecture of the churches, um, and a lot of uh, the history of the Romans and all kinds of different things, a little bit of history of Spain, too. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like I kind of had an idea of what I was biting off. Mm Mm-hmm. And in all my reading, I decided not to actually buy a guidebook. I just said, well, um, I'll go, and I kind of had this handwritten plan mm-hmm. that I sort of loosely mapped out, and I knew I needed to be certain places on certain dates because mm-hmm. I was meeting up with a friend mm-hmm. uh, at the end, and that's what I did. And, and even though I read a lot, I think you can – there's so many things that happen that you can't anticipate – Mm -hmm. or plan for. So I didn't really uh, worry about that too much, not having a guidebook, because in my day-to-day job, I do a lot of planning. Mm -hmm. 
And I wanted to get away from that. I didn't want to be worried about all of the minutia and where am I going to stay and what <laughs> all yep. of that stuff. Uh, so even though I read a lot, I think I'm mostly more so read about what to pack and what not to pack. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the rest, I just sort of said, well, I'll figure it out when I get there. Nice. Yeah, so nice balance. <laughs> yeah. I want to talk to you about uh, expressions that have developed around the Camino. So I'm going to give you a few, and I'm interested in your reactions to each. And you can take okay. them wherever you want to go. So the first one is walk your own Camino. Well, this is this is interesting and something I hadn't really heard before I mm-hmm. left, um, but I had to come to terms with on the <laughs> Camino. Um, so I met a bunch of people and I and I started walking with some of them, mm-hmm. and then it became very apparent that I was much slower than them, mm. and I kind of got frustrated with myself, like why can't I walk faster and. Uh, I'm not going to catch up to them and I'm being slow and I'm keeping the group behind and just different, these kinds of things you start getting in your mind about where you're supposed to be, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or if you've written out this handwritten plan, uh, (laughs) well, I'm going to be here by this date or I'm going to do this. And so I think this expression of walking your own Camino can mean a lot of different things to other people. It can mean hey, um, I am with this group, but, you know, I really want to stay in this particular town because I heard that there's a really beautiful church that you can stay out there, so I'll, mm-hmm. I hope they'll meet up with them down the road. Or it can be your own internal, you know what, I'm going to get there, everything will be fine. Mm-hmm. i got to do it with, you know, what my body is telling me I can do, maybe where I am mentally as well. Um, so that's one thing that I think is important about walking your own Camino. I think the other thing that I learned once I got back and just in discussions with other people who had either gone on a Camino or knew people who had was there's a lot of, well, you didn't start X, Y, and Z in whatever (laughs) town, or you didn't stay here, or you didn't see this. And so to not really, uh, you know, regret any of that or say, oh, well, I should have, I should have, but to say, you know, this was my trip and I think that's what makes it the Camino beautiful, too, is that it's different for everybody. Mm-hmm. And so if it was all the same for everyone and everyone had the same experiences, well, you probably wouldn't have a podcast. That's probably true. <laughs> and uh, it wouldn't be quite as meaningful. So I think it's really it's a really good statement to kind of carry with you. Absolutely. Okay, second expression, the Camino provides. Wow. Okay. You know, I think I I read this a lot in my planning that people would say, oh, don't worry, the Camino provides. And I thought, well, that's kind of cheesy. Like, what does that mean? (laughs) But then when I got there and I was on the Camino, I just experienced so many things that made me really say, okay, you know, I think this is something you can carry into your own day-to-day life is everything will work out. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of what the Camino provides to me means. So, for example, I told you I had really, really bad allergies. Mm -hmm. And in Spain, when you buy something at the pharmacy, sometimes they'll throw in something like a a little pack of tissues, travel tissues or whatever. And I kept losing these little packs of travel tissues. Mm-hmm. But then I kept finding little packs that other people had <laughs> lost, you know, along the trail. Yep. <laughs> so I was like, man, this is just, you know, perfect timing. And then another thing that I think about when I hear the Camino provides is that I 
walked pretty much consistently with um, a girl who was French Canadian, mm-hmm. and she didn't speak very good English or she wasn't confident. So we mostly spoke in Spanish, which was interesting because we both have a different level of sure. Spanish uh, comprehension. And on the day that we decided to walk into Leon, we actually hadn't anticipated doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we got to where we thought we were going to stop. And she said, I feel pretty good. Let's keep going. And I said, well, so do I. So uh, we started walking, and there's nothing. There's no. not a little town. It's really barren. Uh, and then you, you get in, start getting into the industrial part of the city, which to me is always the worst part sure. of walking into these big cities. And she walked faster than I did, so eventually I caught up to her. She had sat down, and she said, do you have any food? And I said, well, I kind of have some uh, cheese and some rice cakes, but not much else. And it was getting about dinner time at this point. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, I would really love some chocolate cake. Like, how nice would it be if we had chocolate cake? <laughs> That's like, it's always yeah. true. Yeah, it's always true. So we walked on, and of course she walked, ended up getting ahead of me. And we were walking uh, in an industrial area with a lot of businesses. Mm-hmm. And I turned a corner, and I couldn't see her anymore, but I, there was this man standing in the middle of the road. And I'm thinking, oh, gosh, like, what is he like? You know? Yep. And he said, come over here, come over here, your friend's over here. I'm like, what? And he had a bottle of water in his hand. He said, would you like some water? And I walked over, and they had their garage door up to their business, and they were having a huge party wow. with these big, uh, huge, the big paella drums and all kinds of desserts and cheese and the cedar, which is the this special drink that you have to pour from on high to get yeah. the carbonation going. and. They just invited us in and fed us all of this wonderful food and chatted with us and told us about their Camino experiences. And then they gave us chocolate cake. How perfect. And it was like, okay, that's the, (laughs) you know, then, okay, the Camino does provide, right? Absolutely. (laughs) So it was just a wonderful uh, experience, you know, that I would have never anticipated. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's kind of what the Camino provides to me. And it also, I think for most people is, a tool to say, you know, don't worry. Mm-hmm. Uh, things will work out uh, how they're supposed to in a way. Yeah. You know, or things will come up or someone will come along. So another example is I really had injured my foot and I was walking with this woman and she just happened to run into me and she said, oh, what's wrong? You're kind of limping. And I said, well, I've had this old foot injury. And she said, well, when we get into the albergue, let me look at it. I'm a physical therapist. That's convenient. And maybe I can help you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> something I wasn't even really worried about, she kind of was able to help me out with. So yeah. just a really, uh, that's the one thing I think that you'll find on the Camino. This really true is things will happen that you never anticipated. Yeah. And it's interesting because it's often framed as, um, as this mystical force, almost as though it's, it's fate operating that, that these miracles will take place on the Camino. But I think the way that you framed it before is, is, maybe more applicable or, or, or interesting in the sense that one of the things, one of the effects walking on the Camino has, I think for many of us is it inspires a kind of optimism and that, that things will work out that no matter where you are, no matter what you're suffering in that moment, 
it's going to work out for the best. And yeah, exactly. And we lack that so often, I think, in, mm-hmm. in our daily lives and that it's it's invigorating to feel that. Oh, for sure. And I was thinking, too, I think in our daily lives, we have more of an opportunity to fix things for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so we are emboldened or we're empowered by that. But when mm-hmm. we when you're out somewhere kind of and all you have is what's on your back and maybe the people that you've met along the way, it can feel a little bit um, uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And so that sense that, hey, things will work out, I think that we kind of need to take that back into our, our daily lives and say, mm-hmm. okay, hey, I, I saw it when I didn't have all of these resources at my hand. Maybe I need to relax a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Okay, the third expression is the tourist demands and the pilgrim thanks. I think this is interesting in that when you think about the Camino historically, uh, many people walked with, you know, a lot less than what we have now Mm -hmm. and a lot less knowledge of where they were going and what would be up ahead of them. And so... Anything that comes your way at that probably at that time you were really thankful for, mm-hmm. and I feel that as a pilgrim, you are trying to experience sort of what happens and where you are, and maybe that means you don't have quite as many expectations. Whereas when you're a tourist, you sort of have this checklist and this in your mind this vision of what is going to happen, mm-hmm. and so when those things don't happen. Uh, you might get a little bit upset and more frustrated and become a more demanding type of person. Whereas when you're a pilgrim, you're sort of just taking things as they come and you Mm -hmm. have a lot less expectations. And so it's easier to be really thankful when things do happen, like the story with the chocolate cake or running into this physical therapist. It's like, oh, okay, well, I really appreciate that. I'm so thankful that that came into my life and Mm -hmm. I didn't have any kind of expectation behind any of that. Mm-hmm. I think about this one a lot in terms of albergues, and for me, it's 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 really interesting that you know over the last five years there's been this growth in private albergues, and not just private albergues, but really cushy albergues. You know, where yes. mm-hmm. there's there's Wi-Fi and there's you know, really nice furniture and well-stocked kitchens. And they're just all Mm -hmm. of these conveniences that sometimes it makes it harder when you're in one of the more basic albergues that still meets all of your basic needs to, to appreciate it in the same way Mm -hmm. that you might have prior to the, this, this arrival of, of so many more luxurious pilgrim accommodations. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. And I think that, it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see how the Camino evolves over mm-hmm. time. Um, I, I met some people who had done the, the Primitivo and, and the northern route, mm-hmm. and they said, well, this is, wow, the, the sunset's <laughs> so nice, you know, compared to uh, what you run into there. And then someone said, oh, well, it wasn't like this 10 years ago. Yep. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if the Camino itself, in particular the Frances, becomes more of a tourist type of trip instead of a actual pilgrimage. Yep. Last one. The Camino begins in Santiago. This this one is really interesting, and I hadn't heard this until I actually got home and met somebody else. I got 
met up with a Camino group the day after I got home from my trip, actually. Mm-hmm. And I met a woman who had done it multiple times. And she said, oh, well, now it's just beginning. And I think what that really means is that once you have gone through the whole pilgrimage, no matter where you started or how long it took you or which route you take, you learn all of these things Mm -hmm. about yourself, about other people, um, about how you deal with things. And you are only learning those within this little biosphere, basically, of being a pilgrim. Mm And so once you get home, once you've reached Santiago and you're not in that mindset anymore, your life can be a little bit different how you approach your work, how you approach relationships because of those things that you learned that you didn't really realize were happening, you know, Mm -hmm. changes within yourself or your perspective. And then it starts shaping your life in ways that you didn't anticipate upon your return. Mm. And so I think that I'm still feeling some of that. I'm, what, six, seven months out, you know, mm-hmm. from my my Camino, and I'm still seeing, okay, wow, this, you know, things that would maybe bother me in my job before, I'm like, yeah, I'm not really worried about that. <laughs> you know? And I've slowed down a little bit, and I think that that's really what that means, is that, um, and many people go on the Camino for a lot of different reasons, and some of them uh, go when they're having a major life change. Mm-hmm. And so when they get home, they've sort of taken this break to deal with this major life change or in in anticipation of this major life change. And I think that all of those things that those people picked up individually during their pilgrimage are going to help them in that next stage, that next, you know, part of your life. Absolutely. So with just a couple questions left for you, I'm always really interested in the places that stand out in people's memories. So what's mm-hmm. a place for you from your Camino that is prominent in your reflections on the Camino? The place that probably stands out to me the most is in Lagronio. <laughs> and it was, this was, we, we got into Lagronio during one of those times when it was really, really hot. Mm-hmm. And I thought we would never get there. The lead up to a city sometimes can be the worst. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the girl that I mentioned earlier that I was walking with, Leon, we were together. And she really wanted to have, she was hell-bent on having this Camino experience. You yeah. know, where I'm not going to take a taxi. I'm going to walk every kilometer. I'm going to stay in the you know official albergues. None of these private albergues, this type of thing. Mm-hmm. And maybe she was on a budget. We never talked about that. But this could be the case in this situation. Sure. And she said, do you want to stay at the parochial albergue, which was in the church, which I believe is El Camino de Santiago El Real or something. That's the name of that church there in mm-hmm. Lagonio. And I said, sure, I don't really care. I'm, I'm up for anything. <laughs> and so we got there, and the one of the hostess, Uh, was really apologetic, and she said, well, we don't have any more beds, but we have mats, and you can sleep on the floor. And uh, she kind of looked at me. We didn't know each other at this point. We'd just been walking together for two days. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'm I'm totally fine with, you know, having a mat on the floor. And it was a wonderful experience. In this particular church, you have a community dinner together, Mm -hmm. and the... Uh, wife and the husband who were sort of running, you know, helping, they were the volunteers at this um, parochial albergue, they made this fantastic meal, and there were people from, you know, of course, all over the world, 
And then afterwards, they invite you to a service, and you don't have to go, um, but almost everybody did. And you sing uh, these songs, but everybody sings it in their own language. Wow. And then you read a few different poems, and they kind of break the verses up. Okay, you know, everybody who's an English speaker will do this first stanza, Mm -hmm. uh, Dutch, German. I think we had, well, French people there as well. And uh, it was just really beautiful in that church to kind of have that experience and share that with these people um, from all over the world. And I don't know, it was just really, really a different type of albergue experience Mm -hmm. um, than if you stay in a private one or even one of the municipal ones that are huge with tons and tons and tons of people, right? Sure. Uh, You get to connect on a different level when you're in one of these smaller um, spaces. So it was just really a, just an amazing experience. That's awesome. Yeah. On the flip side, like, let's say that I could give you the power now to go back, do the pilgrimage over again. Is there one thing that you would change from your experience or do differently? I think the one thing that I would change, which is so simple, is I would wear a different pair of shoes. Hmm. The shoes I had, I walked in them. They were fine before I left, but I just think they were way too heavy. Yeah. Um, And as I mentioned before, I already had some problems from probably wearing the wrong shoes my whole life anyway. (laughs) And (laughs) flip-flops and all those kinds of non-supportive shoes. Yep. And I think the the day-to-day walking and just how heavy those boots were really... I had some really major pain in my feet. Mm. And uh, it was so funny because at the end of the day, you know, you're somewhere and maybe you're at the albergue, you're in a cafe, and there's a bunch of other pilgrims, and they keep asking you, what's wrong, what's wrong, why are you walking like that? (laughs) And all I could help was think, did you just not walk 20, 30 kilometers today? (laughs) 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 What's wrong with you that you're you're totally fine? (laughs) So that was the one thing I would change. I don't think I would change anything else, my route, my path, the people I met. Um, I I think it was wonderful, you know. I had yeah. some not-so-fun experiences, of course, and some days where I thought, why am I doing this? Like, this is crazy. This is what crazy people do. Yep. <laughs> but um, overall, I think all of those things combined um, are just part of the experience, and they really help you grow. So wear the right shoes. That's all Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I always tell my students when they're, trying out footwear fine is not good enough you know that like it has to be perfect it really has to be exactly the right fit and that's what you go with Um, so will you walk again are you are you gonna go back walk another pilgrimage at some point I said I wouldn't when I Uh was probably in the middle Uh but now I I really would love to I um I listened to the podcast about the via from Chenga? San Francesco. Francesco. And I was like, yeah. oh, that, the food sounds wonderful. So yep. <laughs> that sounds amazing. And then um, I also was reading about somebody else that had done the Camino in Camino de Santiago. And she also did something in Japan where yeah. it's the Walk of 88 Temples. Yeah. And I just thought, wow, that sounds so different and such a different cultural experience. So those uh, are probably on my list, and I think that I would like to, I would love to go with my mom and just walk the beginning of the Camino to Pamplona. Mm. 
I felt like that was some of the most beautiful, maybe because I remember that the most from the class I took of all the different churches and Mm -hmm. uh, history along the way, but I just thought that was some of the most beautiful parts of the Camino. Yeah. Um, and, and the churches and all those different towns along the way, too. So who knows? <laughs> yep. That's awesome. Rachel, yeah. thanks for coming on the podcast and telling us about your experiences. Thanks for having me. And I hope you have a wonderful holiday season and a wonderful Camino on the next one. wrap up today, I want to spend a few minutes talking about the pilgrim numbers from 2015. Overall, 262,436 pilgrims received their Compostela at the Santiago Pilgrim's Office in 2015. 262,000, more than a quarter million. What's worth noting is that not all pilgrims get their Compostela. Indeed, not all pilgrims arrive in Santiago. Many make the pilgrimage in smaller chunks. So Sylvia Nilsson, who's quite well informed about the Camino, shared that the Pilgrim Office determined at one point that roughly one out of every five pilgrims received their Compostela. So if you run the numbers, that means there were around 1.3 million pilgrims on Camino in 2015. From an American perspective, what stands out is that for the first time, at least as long as I've been following the numbers, the United States came in fourth overall in number of pilgrims on the Camino. We had a total of 13,657 Americans receive the Compostela in 2015, following only Spain, Italy, and Germany. This is the first time that we've passed neighboring Portugal. On a previous episode, Cheryl Grasmoen, the board chair of the American Pilgrims on Camino, shared that APOC has issued 7,500 credentials to Americans in 2015. Clearly, you don't have to get an APOC credential to walk, uh, but that's reflective of that surge in numbers overall. Again, approaching 14,000 pilgrims total. What's important to note in order to contextualize these numbers is that the growth in Americans on the Camino has been quite dramatic. If you just go back four years to 2011, there were only 3,726 pilgrims on the Camino. To put it another way, that's about as many Americans in 2011 as there were Brazilians and Koreans combined. So the growth has been almost 10,000 in four years. That's dramatic. It outpaces most countries. That said, it doesn't outpace two of the three countries in front of us. Spain, Spain, of course, is number one, and that's going to continue for as long as the Camino remains in Spain. But, or I suppose as long as Spain remains one country, which is a totally separate issue for another time. But for now, assuming the territorial integrity of Spain, we're going to see them hold firmly in the number one slot. Over this time period, these four years in which 
the the American numbers have increased so dramatically, they don't even hold a candle to the Spanish numbers. Indeed, Spanish pilgrims have increased by 25,000 since 2011. So tons of Spanish people are walking. Italian pilgrims have held steady with Americans over those four years, as they've also increased by about 10,000. The one country in front of the U.S. that has not been maintaining that pace is the Germans, whose numbers largely held steady from 2011 to 2014, but jumped by about 2,000 this year. Their big surge had happened a few years earlier, between 2006 and 2008, when German comedian Kirkling's I'm Off Then was published to great acclaim in Germany and caused a huge increase in in German numbers. But while you might think that means that the United States has a shot at climbing to third overall in 2016, it's important to note the film version of Kirkling's book has just come out. So I have a feeling we're not going to be seeing number three anytime soon. And that's neither a good thing nor a bad thing. For me, one of the great pilgrim experiences has always been being part of an international community. And in my last couple of pilgrimages, I felt some sadness about the fact that it's so easy to gravitate towards the English speakers. And when there are lots of Americans around, to find yourself surrounded by Americans. So I think it's important that the numbers from other countries remain quite high and that the Americans simply represent one part of the equation. And I think that's what we're going to continue to see for a while. That's it for this episode. I want to thank Landon for joining us and talking about his new book. You can find out more at ontheprimitiveway.com. I want to thank Rachel for talking with me about Pilgrim Expressions and her time on the Camino Frances. Thanks to Johnny Walker, who is always so helpful with the statistics from Santiago and sharing out these 2015 numbers. Keep in mind that you can get in touch with us at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com. Please write if you'd like to be on the podcast. I could use more pilgrims with recent experiences to share. Talk with me. Remember that you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and you can follow us or subscribe on iTunes, and that will ensure that you always have immediate access to new episodes of the podcast. It'll also make me feel really good, so keep that in mind. In any case, that's it for now. Hope to have another episode for you by next Sunday or Monday. Enjoy the week. 